RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Optimum Nutrition. To get a 40% discount across their entire batch-tested range, use the code RENEGADE40 at www.onacademy.co.uk forward slash elite portal. And of course, members of the Rugby Renegade online subscription program get an exclusive 50% discount plus free access to the Optimum Nutrition online nutrition course. Yes, welcome back to episode 71 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain, and today I interview John Ashby, strength and conditioning coach with the Welsh Rugby Union and also experienced with the British and Irish Lions as well. So it's great to pick his brains about uh, life on tour with the Lions, and um, we go into depth about how they've prepared for World Cups and the different uh, training modalities they've used. Um, so it's full of information if you want to hear about altitude training, uh, warm weather training, um, repeated sprint ability uh, and actually see how they've looked at the research um, with their players in their environment you know to prepare for a world cup is really interesting so give it a listen and let us know what you think hi john welcome to the rugby renegade podcast uh, great to have you on so let's start by you telling us a little bit about your background how you got into strength and conditioning and who you've worked with hi jamie uh thanks for inviting me on mate really appreciate it um so uh i started uh, S&C back in 2007 really where I did a, a placement year at uh, London Wasps Rugby Club as part of my sandwich course like most people have um, at Bath University so that's what sort of I, I wanted to I was always rugby player wanted to get into rugby I realised I wasn't good enough I wanted to stay in professional sport so went to Wasps and so that's when I realised I wanted to do S&C I had a fantastic Fantastic year then, learned a hell of a lot of the people that were there. So uh, Paul Smidgen, um is actually gone for circles, is my boss at Wales now. Davis, some of the guys. And then um, did the usual thing, went back to uni, sort of walked into a job straight away, um, like most young kids do, and <clears throat> there wasn't anything around. Um, so I got uh, an offer from Wales to do a postgraduate internship with Craig White. Um, he knew of me. From Wasps, and I think he thought I did all right there. Um, uh, luckily, so he offered me to do a, an internship with the national team. Um, so I did it with uh, <coughs> Wales uh, during the international period, and then the Newport Dragons uh, out of the international periods, and it was amazing, really. Um, I got obviously really high exposure for international rugby with Wales, then with the Dragons, I got a huge, huge amount of responsibility during that placement year. Um, so I, uh, I then luckily got a job from that with Wales. So I was in the same position where I did it building up to the 2011 World Cup where um, I did Wales for international periods and then as an assistant conditioning coach and then with Dragons, I was one of the strength conditioning coaches there outside the international period. Um, so that, and then went to the World Cup 2011. And after that, I got a, a full-time contract with Wales and which is the position that I've been since as one of the strength conditioning coaches for the national team. Oh, awesome! Yeah, and <clears throat> that's you know some good experiences there in terms of World Cups and things like that, which we'll we'll talk about. Um, so I, I kind of did a did a bit of research um, 
on, on stuff you've been involved with and stuff at your time of Wales. And I know you've worked under some great um, heads of S&Cs and been involved in some of um, what they've done and research. And one of the first things that came up was the research on repeated sprint ability in hypoxic conditions. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about what the what the setup was, what you found, and kind of how you how you'd use it moving forward. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm starting, um, sort of glad really uh, I've been really lucky in my time, which worked with some for and with some amazing people. So I've learned a hell of a lot of things. Luckily, with the sort of position I've had, so obviously Craig White, is now at um, Chicago Clubs, Dan Bauer is now at Wasps, uh, some Paul Spurgeon I've known for years. So. He was my boss at Wasps, now he's my boss at Wales. Uh, and then the current guys there, like Hugh Bennett, Ryan Chambers, John, John Williams. So I just wanted to mention them. You'll learn a hell of a lot of them, but I, I owe a great deal to all of them for where, where I am. So with the, the RSH, so RSH is repeat split hypoxia. So we got an altitude chamber in 2013, and there was a bit of research on sort of repeat sprint ability with team sports, how important it is. And hypoxia with it, so there's more people that were getting sort of altitude chambers and, and working out how to do it. There's a few lab tests on it. Um, so Beardy was doing his PhD uh, environmental factors, and one of my uh, keen interests is sort of the environmental factors and physiology of SNC. So I, did, I was lucky enough to do quite a lot and ran a lot of studies um, for them. So the main thing we wanted to do is how we could use RSH or any type of attitude training within a campaign. Because as you know, with professional rugby training, it's very high, lots of time constraints. So we wanted to work out a protocol that was really small um, in time, so it wouldn't actually add to much time load, and it, we couldn't replace anything. So you can't replace weights, you can't replace rugby training at all. So we couldn't add any additional running load to it and we couldn't have that much time. So that was the main purpose of it, it was how to we logistically use RSH in a protocol. So we uh, designed a, sort of a, a bike test, really. So to start off, we did a threshold bike test that I, I designed with Gregoire Millet. So he's one of the, he's a professor at the University of Lausanne, and uh, he's sort of like the new altitude gear, gear, guru, sorry, on sort of, uh, altitude mythologies from hematological stuff to repeat sprint ability. Um, so he he was he luckily worked with us for the project. Um, so we did a bike test, we did a threshold test. So we did uh, just a standard repeat sprint, like seven seconds on, twenty three seconds off, and we recorded the mean power output of uh, the first reps. I mean, well, we wanted to make that high, so we did a seven second effort, four minutes off, seven second effort minutes off and made sure that those two the average of them to make them high then we started our protocol and we did seven seconds on 23 seconds off and recorded the main variable was mean power output and then we they kept the guys kept on going until their mean power output of the rep fell below 80 percent of their first rep marker so say if they got a thousand watts on their first rep if they went below 800 that counted as one that they fell below and if they fell below on two consecutive occasions you stop the test for example rep three they went 750 rep four they went 750 would stop but if they went rep three 750 rep four 810 they would reset again so it's two consecutive ones then we'd stop the test they did and then used all the variables we, we bought some loader bikes which uh, are pretty high-end ones 
and so they can check out every variable work done, all power outputs, etc., etc. We also do blood lactates as well. So before, pre, post, uh, I think it was three, five, and eight minutes post test. Um, and then we took those tests. Um, so we did that for the whole squad, and then we had two different groups. So we had uh, repeat sprint hypoxia RSH group, and then a normoxia group. So we split it forwards and back. So the forwards did hypoxia, so they were in the altitude room, at 3,000 meters, which is about 13 to 14% oxygen, and the backs were in uh, normoxia, so normal conditions, but they thought it was at hypoxia, so we turned the altitude on, but set to zero, so the fans were still going, um, which is pretty cool. And then we did the, so they, they all did exactly the same training, so they did four sessions, and they were early morning, so it was about half past seven before breakfast, and each session consisted of three sets, and each set was six seconds on, 18 seconds off, times by six. So really short. So the entire session was 12 minutes, including the warm-up. And the key with it is that they had to go maximal every rep. So it's like it's a traditional repeat sprint protocol, really. And we did that over about 10 days. Then we repeated the tests. And then we wanted to see how much improved. Obviously, because it's training, both of them would have, would have improved. We wanted to see how much improved compared to the normoxer. With the test, the hypoxia group improved their max power 9% more than the normoxia group. Min power was 10% more. Mean power, which is the most important one, was 8% more. But the reps to completion, so before failure, uh, didn't actually improve any more than the normoxia group. So we came to the conclusion that the RSH with bike, it didn't actually increase the reps to failure, but it improved the work done in that time period. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, an 80-minute match, it's always going to be the same. The work you can do in that 80-minute match improved a hell of a lot. So that was really significant. So when you're talking about sort of elite rugby players, you're getting 8%, 10 9% increases. That's huge. Yeah. So we, we've used that as a protocol sort of ever since. So the first time, first week we go into camp, we, we need to raise intensity of training because it's just – a higher intensity of training, higher intensity of match play internationally compared to regionally. So the first week we do that, um, we do four sessions or our sets on the bike to help him to help bridge that gap. And it doesn't increase their running load, um, acute chronic, all that stuff, but it helps <clears throat> get that intensity into their system. Um, so we also repeated, we did another paper as well. Um, so it's all been published now. Um, it'll be Beard et al. Um, and we did upper body, so we did exact same protocols, exact same test, but with upper body skiered. And then the results were hypoxic group increased their max power 11% more than the normoxic group, min power 15, mean power 11%, and then the total work they did was 20% more than the um, normoxic uh, group. And the reps completed, they actually did 8% more reps uh, completed, the improvement. So. It's a, it was it had a bigger effect on your upper body muscles than your lower body muscles. And my thinking is on that is that um, they're smaller muscles, so you know triceps are smaller than your quads, so they're more fatigue resistant, so they fatigue quicker, so it have a greater effect on it. Um, so that was really interesting actually. And what the theory is behind it is that it goes into huge molecular detail. But from what I know is that when you go maximally in hypoxia, there's um, a selective vasodilation to your fast switch muscle fibers compared to the normoxia so basically obviously we all know your fast twitch muscle fibers have greater power but they fatigue very quickly so they maintain that high power for longer so it means you can maintain a high amount of power for a longer time 
Yeah. No, that, that's cool. I mean, even obviously, a lot of our listeners won't have access to a, a, an altitude chamber, but just just the way logistically you put that in into the program to increase that that high intensity um, or repeat sprintability, the adaptations um, without adding to the load of of you know the amount they're doing rugby technically, tactically, you know, as well. Um, that, that's really interesting. Um, I had a podcast uh, recently with David Bishop, and he's talking about you know a lot of times we try and integrate stuff into rugby training and then you don't actually get the adaptation you want from a physiological point of view whereas this is a perfect way of kind of getting that and obviously if you can do it hypoxic um in hypoxia then even better uh it's really yeah. really interesting yeah there's actually some stuff out there now like for uh, people that don't we're very lucky we have an altitude change of resources but people don't act for this Ventilatory training. So basically, you're causing hypoxia when in normal conditions. But then it sounds, it sounds really crude. But it's basically holding your breath. Okay. When you repeat sprints. So I'm looking into that now. There's been a bit of research in the past couple of years on it. Um, some on rugby as well. So um, so some in Toulon. So uh, Bobby Paul Stridgen did did some work with his PhD student when he was in Toulon there, and decent results. So I'm looking into that now of how we can actually do that. You know, when you do you know a set conditioning on the pitch after, how can actually, how can we improve that by getting a hypoxic response? So if people are interested who don't have the resources, that may be a way of sort of thinking about it. Yeah, no, definitely. And and moving on, I know you've done um, you know training camps um, in in Europe. At altitude. What, what have you experienced been of, of that, and how have you how have you used that? Right. Yeah, <clears throat> we were really lucky as well. So for our World Cup camp, we did it 15 and 19. We um, again from the advice of Gregoire Miller as well. There's there's traditional hypoxic training, which is you know going on an altitude camp, and then there's obviously the new stuff, which is peripheral RS8. So for the traditional stuff, um, we did live high train low camp. Yeah. So <clears throat> basically. We went to a we went to a, a ski resort in Switzerland and uh, it had and we it was perfect really for us. So we had um, we lived high, so it was at two thousand three hundred meters, which is just high altitude from the definition. And then we um, we lived in this the ski chalet ski resorts there, and then we went down the gondola to eleven hundred meters, so low altitude to medium altitude. And there's actually a football pitch right at the bottom of the gondola, <coughs> so. This time around in a sort of tennis centre, it's like a children's So we had gym by the pitch of the tennis centre. So we took our old gym in Wales and we put it on an Arctic lorry and transported it all the way to Switzerland. Um, mental, like uh, I was, I was sort of leading that with, with doing all that, and it was mental. It's amazing how hard it is, you know. Like half the job in S and C is sort of logistics rather than actually S and C, but that, that was pretty cool. Gym over there. Um, in tennis center so the benefits of it is that for every one percent for every hundred hours you stay at sort of high altitude you get one percent increase in hemoglobin mass so they say in the research you need to be there for 14 days to get a decent benefits so it's like three four percent we it's very hard to measure it because it's, it's quite expensive testing so unfortunately we didn't do it but we we're there for 14 days and you live high but you train low because you can get the you can get the training intensity that you need of training. Yes, for 14 days, that was sort of our sort of start of our overload camps. We worked them hard, but 
we think our aim of it was to get a big aerobic base. So, <clears throat> so then when we go into the next phase of our training, um, this big sort of catalyst or springboard so guys can train at higher training intensity so they can get a greater sort of anaerobic adaptations, all the other adaptations that you do in periodizations for pre-season work really well. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the you know the fact that you can still train at intensity at the at the lower altitude. I, I've been on camps before um, where it's been live high, train high, and um, I, it's it's intense, but in in the other sense of intensity, not in terms of you know training maximally. It's just you know it's a slog. You know you can't keep those high intensities up, um, but it feels intense while you're doing like you know as you know experience walking up the stairs is tough enough at altitude. So. Um, but, you, like you would obviously you want to stay up as long as possible but you always got to think sport specific like if you're doing say marathon running and stuff you can go high train high because that's intensity but with rugby when you're doing like repeat sprints and stuff you just can't get that yeah and I think a lot of the research does suggest that um, live high train low is, is more effective doesn't it yeah there's some there's some cool stuff out there as well again very lucky with Gregor Millay that says there's live the new thing now is live high train low plus high so you do you combine everything so you, you live high but you train low most of the time and then you do some repeat sprint hypoxia as well to sort of top it up to get that so you can get peripheral and sort of central adaptations yeah. so there's some there's some really cool stuff going on with sort of altitude training like combinations of everything yeah yeah, definitely. Now, um, it, we're talk, talking about kind of training camps as well. I know Wales is one of the um, the first people to use cryotherapy, you know, going over to Sparta in Poland, uh, and you've got your own cryo chamber at the Vale in Wales as well. Um, what's been your experience of using it and, and what sort of benefits have you seen? Well, we've um, we've had cryo now for 2012 or 2013. So cryo, a bit of background, cryo was actually started in the 60s in Poland and sort of, they're mad over there. They use it for the health benefits. So people would actually go on holiday to a cryo center and have cryotherapy, like just, you know, average Joe's general people like me and you. And they would go there for the health benefits. There's lots of stuff on cancer, arthritis, depression, ME, MS, etc., etc. Um, but Ireland started using it early 2000s for sport. And then Wasps used it um, under Gats uh, and Craig White and Bobby. And that's where I sort of got sort of understanding of it. And then we went to our camps, 2011 World Cup to Sparla. So these are sort of big, um, sort of they were Olympic training camps, sort of state-funded training camps in Poland. And they've got, there's basically middle of nowhere. All they have is a gym, a pitch and a cryo chamber. So you go in there. Um, so we wanted to bring it over. So luckily we got cryo chamber 2013, as I said. Um, and it's worked really well, actually. We have it a long time. We've luckily... Because we've had a long time, we have a pretty good understanding of how it works and what um, what you need to do to get the benefits that you want from it. Because there's not actually that much research in sport. You probably know as well, uh, Jamie. There's, there's there's not much research on the effects of cryotherapy on sport, and it's one of those things like ice baths and general recovery stuff. There's lots of sort of like different views on it. Um, so we use it. Uh, we've done a bit of internal research on it as well. Like we, we use the sevens and. We did a bit of internal research on sort of how cryotherapy affects the subsequent day's performance compared to usual, and it came up with some pretty decent sort of results. But a lot of our stuff is anecdotal, and we're trying to work on that by getting some sort of more research, clinical research into it. But I break up the two ways we think it's. Obviously, 
with recovery, you want to make guys as fresh as possible. So in test weeks, for example, if we were playing Saturday to Saturday, we would use it. Sunday morning, they would do cryo. Uh, on Monday, um, they would have it. They would have compulsory in the morning. And then the afternoon, they would have an option. They could either do an ice bath or cryo. Tuesday would be the same, so on the big double day, have to do it in the morning, and then it's optional to do it in the afternoon. Wednesday will be off, like our day off. Thursday, they'll do it twice, option to do it up to twice again. Friday, they'll do it once after their team run, and then there's some, uh, and then we offer it at night time as well, so about six, seven o'clock after dinner. Some guys have it, um, and there's a bit of research on it, it helps out sleep. So it's a big parasympathetic drive. So, for example, Mo Farah used it for the 2012 or 16 Olympics. Um, so we did that. And then Saturday, so game day, we actually sort of introduced this. We, had a, we thought about it a few years ago, and it works quite well. Um, so we do it four hours before a game. It's a big sympathetic rush. So we put it down as cold as it can, so minus 160. And guys just go in there for one minute, and it's a big sympathetic drive. And basically... It wakes them up. Like, say, if they've had a sleep last night, I don't think. I sort of guarantee anyone who wouldn't be waking up by going into sort of a freezer for one minute, minus 160. And it worked <laughs> really well. Um, so that's the basic. And, you know, the, the theory of it is exactly the same as an ice bath and stuff. Like, there's other there's other benefits to, like, hormonal benefits, the long-term effect of it as well. And it's more central than an ice bath, where an ice bath is more um, sort of localised to the muscle area. So we, we periodise it quite a lot. So... You know, this thinking of it, if it's a contact session with rugby, players seem to like an ice bath more because it's the feeling actually on the muscle and the bones. Whereas if it's other sessions, um, they go uh, sort of cryotherapy. So that's why we try and we want them to do it one, at least once a day, but then we give it an option after. Because it's a big thing with rugby players, you know, it's a novelty factor. Like they're getting in there for our six nations, eight weeks, twice a day, five or six days a week. They're just going to get bored from it and not, there won't be much compliance. So we try and give them a bit of ownership of it. Yeah, definitely. You've got to got to take into account the kind of individual preferences as well and stuff like that. So it's, it sounds really good, and also fascinating that you, it's depending on how you use it, it can be parasympathetic uh, stimulus or or yeah, you know, sympathetic yeah, the, stimulus. So it's interesting. Yeah, there's some cool stuff as well. So the, the biggest thing with me as well, one of my things is the overuse of recovery modalities for in in rugby or general sports. So sort of People don't really periodise it. So obviously when you want to be fresh, like in test weeks, you have to use it. But pre-season, it's, sort of, it's doing the opposite to what you want. So like people do a nice fast in pre-season. Like you, want, you don't want the adaptations blunted. You actually want to use it. So I think the importance of periodising recovery of when you put it in, when you put it out, is, is, is really important. Because if you just use it all the time, A, you, you're going to blunt the adaptations and no one's going to improve as much and B, it's going to reduce the actual benefit of doing it itself. So if you hold off at some points, you'll get as much as the biggest effect of say cryotherapy or recovery modality when you actually need it the most. Yeah. Um, I think that's a big thing as well. So the only exception to that, we use it in pre-season for in during overload camps. So for example, when you go to an overload camp, like when we go to sort of when we went to Switzerland or Turkey or when we went to Spala before, um, <clears throat> Switzerland and Turkey don't. Switzerland didn't have cryotherapy, but Turkey did, and, and Poland did. So the benefit of that is, is that you can we use the cryo to allow the players to tolerate the increased workload. So if you're doing, for example, they usually do you know, 
two or three sessions a day, including weights. If they're going up to five sessions a day for 10 days, something like that, they're not going to be able to cope with it. So the cryotherapy allows them to tolerate that. And then the important thing with that, this is, is then to get the adaptations, they have they need to have a block of downtime then. So say, you know, five days off, 10 days off without any recovery. So that's it. It sort of just delays the adaptations and it comes in one big chunk when they rest. Yeah, um, but you preempted my, my next question because that was it. Obviously, you said, obviously, inflammation is the kind of stimulus to adapt. So if you're use, overusing uh, recovery modalities, then you don't get that adaptation. But, you know, I'd heard about these these camps where you do, you know, extreme extreme volumes. I guess my next question would be, in terms of periodizing, how, at what point do you do that? Is that kind of middle of pre-season or do you do that first to really spike the load and then and then um, sort of build up again after? Yeah, people would have their own opinions on it, but what we did was, so our pre-season, um, example, 219, we had four weeks at the Vale, which is our base, um, and it was basically getting rid of, ready for Switzerland, and we did no recovery whatsoever, so that was to bulletproof them to for Switzerland, which was a sort of increasing the load, and then when we went to Switzerland, there wasn't any recovery facilities there, so there wasn't ice bar, there was a <laughs> there was a freezing cold river that was coming down from the mountain, that isn't going there. There's a bit of a swim pool, in like a it was a caravan park um, that we used every so often, but we didn't do any recovery, main recovery modalities because we wanted that adaptation. Yeah. Um, then we had a week off, and then we went into our preseason match, uh, first two preseason matches. So that's when we wanted to use the recovery. So what we what we did was because we were still this was the beginning of August, and uh, we weren't going to Japan to. We actually wanted. The guys that were playing, we needed them fresh for the games, but we knew that they were coming into there in a sort of like a not high high preparedness state. But we knew that, and the coaches were happy with that. So we let them recover until the Thursday or Friday of test week. So we wanted to get the biggest adaptations. And then when we went to Turkey, that was sort of our big overload camp with heat that we'll chat about later. But then we used the cryotherapy then so then they could cope. And then after that, we're in the last two sort of... Uh, uh, <clears throat> warm-up games and then we just smashed the recovery because that was our performance zone so we're still doing conditioning but we wanted to make sure that the guys were prepped for the warm-up games because it's obviously a big thing on selection as well um, and then obviously when we we're at the World Cup we went full, full performance mode yeah uh, I mean you just kind of sparked another question there in terms of you know uh, saying some of the players would be going into the games not fully preparedness so there's some not overtraining or overreaching perhaps a better word for it um yeah. and, and the coaches are happy for that um, how i mean that must be great from a from your point of view having coaches that are happy to you know realize there's times of the year where we can really you know push the push the boat a little bit um and then we can ease off at times when we need it so um f- firstly how how do you get coaches to buy into that and and then um and how is it easy to kind of deal with I guess players as well to a certain degree because you said some of them you know want to be in good good shape to be able to compete for their their position their jersey yeah well it's the, the biggest thing as you know you can be the best S&C coach in the world but if your coach doesn't sort of uh, isn't the opponent of S&C and physical performance it's, it's very hard to get in but I've been with all the people that I've worked with the coaches um, Wasps and then Gats with Wales and now uh, Wayne uh, Pivak, they're really big proponents, so it makes it a hell of a lot easier. So, I think with international rugby, it's a lot easier because obviously the preseason is a finite period of time, um, and you're not you're you're peaking for 
September, October, you're not going for the whole year, um, which is very, it's, it's, a, it's a tough gig in the club environment because it's, it's as, as you would know, mate, like me, it's a long old slog, yeah. um, the whole season. So with international rugby, it's a bit easier. And we just, we said to the coaches, like they, because they know the importance of fitness and physical preparedness, they knew how long, we explained to them like how long we're out in August to September, like it was six weeks. Um, from the game so they understood that they weren't going to come in and it was part of the process because they didn't you don't want to with international rugby you've got specific points to peak for so you don't want to peak in August because then by the time when it actually matters you're not going to be at your, your, your highest performance so with the players as well <clears throat> I'm a big proponent as well um, and I've learned it from sort of a lot of people I've worked with is that just explain to the guys what you're doing so that most rugby players are really intelligent guys and they actually like to know that you put thinking and research into what you're doing it so we did a presentation sort of of, a, of our plan of periodization and say look this is what we're doing it this is why we're doing it with our recovery and once they most of them obviously knew it anyway but once everyone knew the plan why they're doing it they all bought into it yeah that's cool uh, now we've, we've spoken about um uh, altitude, cryotherapy. What what kind of other interventions do you guys use? Just trying trying to find that edge. Well, the, the, the biggest one. It sounds a cliche, really. Um, is just working hard. I know everyone says it as well, but it's come from sort of the coaches. So, Gats, uh, Wayne, all the way from, all the way down to the, the heads of departments, all the conditioners. It's, with Wales, there's a big ethos of working hard, um, and you can't escape that. If you if you don't work hard. It doesn't matter if you have, you know, all the edges and things like that. You, you're not going to do well. So that big ethos is who are you working harder than the other team? So we they have a big ethos of working hard on your off weeks, so the fallow weeks, so the game six nations where we don't have um, the weeks where we don't have matches. We work hard then. It's a big, big ethos, and I think that's the most important thing. Um, we've, we've also some other interventions. So from a environmental point of view. Uh, hot baths is sort of we've been using recently so there's quite a lot of research on it from Neil Walsh I think he's at Liverpool Union now he used to be at Bangor um, on hot baths and improving sort of your fitness passively um, and you can improve your fitness for hot conditions but also for normal conditions as well so you know clubs in the UK could use it as well when it's freezing um, anything on saunas as well I know that's I'm guessing a similar sort of mechanism on what again sorry saunas Dawners, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same. Hot baths are a bit more extreme um, and better because it, it sort of fully covers you as well from a humidity point of view. But basically, uh, say you do a training session and uh, your core temp rises when you when you train, uh, and then it goes down again when you stop training. If you jump in a hot bath uh, straight after, it maintains that core temperature rise. Um, and there's lots of aerobic benefits to that as well because obviously you're having a more efficient system you're less likely to get to that critical core temperature etc um, but it, there's some stuff on with triathletes and long distance running that actually improves their sort of 10k marathon times of that so and it's an easy win because it's a form of recovery guys like going in a sauna so we bought um, you know the late inflatable lazy spas yep. and we used Six Nations 19 um, so we were going to use it for the World Cup for a slightly different reason that we'll chat about later but um, the guys got in, they loved it, they just chatting in the jacuzzi. It has to be up to your neck and it has to be hot. They have to be like sweating and struggling. But there's lots of research on improves your general fitness as well. So that's one of the 
the new things, environmental things that we've come on sort of in the past couple of years. Yeah, no, that's um, that's cool. And like I say, it, it sounds similar to what I've seen in saunas and stuff like that with um, endurance athletes jumping straight in after after their session and, like I say, passively still getting a stimulus uh, of ad- ad- adaptation. So that's cool. Um, now, this question we ask all the guests on the podcast, and it's what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? And you can obviously look at that internationally or you know from experience at club level as well. I think the biggest mistake probably is that people think too far ahead so they try and fix like the one percenters um first rather than actually thinking that the main thing like the big rocks first so if you don't have your foundations there it doesn't matter if you have the one percenters or not so are there is their body come right for their position so they <clears throat> is their fat body fat down enough is their muscle mass high enough are they strong are they fit for their position it's 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 very simple but if you think about, you know, your speed, your agility, um, your movement skills, all this stuff, but you don't have the fundamentals, you're not going to be an elite athlete. So you need to get your, you know, the, the basic stuff wrong, your strength, your body comp, your fitness, right, before anything else. Yeah. No, I definitely see that a lot. And I think it's because, you know, like you say, those the speed, agility, power stuff, that's all the kind of sexy stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it's it's boring to to work on body comp and things like that. But you know, you're definitely right. Uh, now, I, we've kind of talked a lot about camps already, but um, I imagine that's the, the best time for an international SNC is you know uh, a, a camp building up to a World Cup. Uh, so, what other than the kind of those different interventions that we've spoken about, what kind of approaches do you guys take um, to get the get the players in the best shape for the World Cup? Yeah, we um yeah, it's the best time for national. So obviously it's every four years and stuff. And we uh yeah, you sort of live and you live and die for it really. Because it's the big thing where you're holding like Six Nations is a long time. The World Cup, you get them for a, doing the World Cup. We're there from May till November. So what's that? Six months. So it's a long old time. So you love it. So the biggest thing that we started like what we chatted about was the we we wanted to get some quality in to start off with. So we had a big emphasis in the first sort of four weeks. Like most most teams do, the periodization is the quality and muscle mass as well. So we did a lot of speed stuff. <clears throat> we did a bit of endurance, but not a huge amount really. We just wanted to the biggest chance to get A, their, their speed improved, their strength and power improved, and get some muscle mass on them as well. Um, so we always had with our gym work as well hypertrophy at the end because muscle mass is so important but we had sort of the main emphasis at the start you know typical period block periodizations or uh sort of you know start with higher reps and then move to strength power stuff as well but we had a big emphasis on that to start off with and then we sort of slowly introduced more um sort of endurance work some aerobic work anaerobic um so then we had like we said we had the, the live high train load camp in switzerland we had a week off after that and during that camp <clears throat> we were doing lots of rugby stuff so games games as conditioning tools we did some math uh, we did some vift so based off 15 um mass running did anaerobic stuff as well so it was all together but we had sort of a general theme where it was a bit more aerobic a bit more anaerobic but we did everything together as well i think that's a big thing because rugby is so in its sort of variables as well to do proper block periodization so you're going to have an aerobic block and anaerobic block that type of stuff because it's so mixed we had that rugby theme going throughout 
Uh, and then we had, then we went to Turkey. Um, we had our games and stuff. We were still working hard, so we introduced the RSH into that as well. So we had a big transfer from <clears throat> our aerobic base, um, like we mentioned, from the altitude camp. And then and that was all central, but we wanted to get peripheral adaptations as well. So that's when we introduced the RSH. Um, the real- then we went to Turkey. That was in between our four World Cup camps. So we went two World Cup games, Turkey camp, two warm up games. Um, so that's when it was just pure rugby, pure rugby. So a lot of stuff, but we had conditioning blocks in there as well. But it was uh, it's more anaerobic rugby related stuff, so contact stuff, uh, walks, repeat sprints, that type of stuff. It was all sort of went away from the mass after. And then one, you know, two weeks. Um, two weeks basically from when we got back to Turkey to when uh, when we left the World Cup and that was pretty important because it was honing in so um, with heat training which is we've used quite a lot with Turkey so that was 38 38 degrees when we were there and the heat is so powerful I don't know if you've done heat camps or not Jamie but it's it's amazing how quickly guys adapt to it and we uh, so we were there for eight days we uh, we got the benefits, but the, the, you lose heat adaptations very quickly, as much, as quick as you actually get them. So basically, when we went from got back from Turkey, we had two and a half weeks we left to Japan. If we didn't do any heat top-ups, we would have lost all the benefits for acclimation. Um, so one of the probably the most important phase was actually for us was that period there where we did heat top-ups. So that's when we used like hot baths, like we said, we did the, the heat bags and the old school boxing stuff like sweatsuits, bin bags underneath their truck the top <laughs> their um their heat acclimation. So when they got to Japan the benefits that we were working on were still maintained. Yeah. And there's a lot of research on there that these top ups it doesn't just maintain it, actually it improves it. Okay. Um, so that was that was really important. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. There's obviously a lot of information there. Oh no, definitely. It just kind of shows the whole the whole philosophy of it in terms of you've got various interventions trying to improve things, but also you've got you've got that rugby element the whole way through. But then also um, it, it's kind of periodized in an approach. It, it just sounds very kind of well well thought out and um, you know covering all the bases and and like you say you, you can't do rugby's one of those sports it's so difficult to do that strict block periodization because there's so many demands uh, for, you know from the game that you've got to cover everything and, and even if you're not focusing on something they'll be they'll be doing it in a rugby session you know somehow even if it's not planned you know well, you can have you can, you can have general themes of stuff like for example we you know, on our in Switzerland, we had a day where we did sort of uh, games and multi-directional stuff. Another day where we did sort of our aerobic um, mass running stuff. Another day where we did like our contact conditioning, but it was all around integrated with games or rugby or something like that. Yeah. And it's a big thing that sort of coaches want to do. And we one of our philosophies is is, is everything's integrated. So we would do a block of conditioning into rugby, block conditioning into rugby, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because you want to get that fatigue. So guys cognitively think when they're fatigued in rugby situations because you're not. I think with sort of conditions as well. Sometimes your ego, people's egos get away. That you're not gonna, you're not getting the fittest team in the world just to be fit. You're getting them to be fit at rugby. Yeah, yeah. That's a big, big thing. Like it's like a gym as well. Like we're not, we're not training powerlifters or Olympic lifters. We're training rugby players. Like. <clears throat> Our ego thing is obviously it's important to get you know decent clean scores, different stuff. But is it actually benefiting their rugby? Yeah. We need to 
thing. Like if it is, that's happy days. Um, really improve that. But for example, if it's affecting their rugby performance, or whatever, you, you need to take your ego away. Yeah, very good point. Now you you mentioned, like I said, in the, in the early stage, big emphasis on improving speed. And I know you've worked a lot with Franz Bosch and incorporated a lot of his approach into that. What what have been the keys uh, to success for your players? Well, we were luckily I've worked with him for ten years now, so he sort of started with Wales a similar time to me. Adam Beard sort of um, brought him in initially, um, and a lot of his stuffs out there. And, and it took me it took me a while because it's, it's pretty complicated stuff. It took me a while to sort of get get my head around it. But basically, the way I think about it is like his motor learning theory. The premise of it is that your body is really clever. And it can cope to different situations. So you want to strain that. It's the old attractor and fluctuators theory. So you need to embed the attractors, so the good sort of positions, points, movements. So then it can adapt. Your body can adapt to any situation that changes, and it goes straight to the um, attractors. So, for example, with running, if you want like um, a good knee drive where your heels point, your heels to your bum, your knees pointing forward, you do that exercise. So you the the maintain you always keep that knee drive in certain exercises but you change all the constructs of the exercise to different so example if he's running he may be fatiguing one leg maybe holding something can unbalance weights but you always go to that attractor state so that heel to bum so then in any situation it transfers to rugby in any situation in rugby you'll always find that position um, and that's his main premise from what I take of it as well I could be completely wrong like it could, it could be uh, it could be some, he could mean it's something totally different. That's how I take it as. Um, and once I got my head around that as well, we could really we really did some cool stuff. So he's he's one of the best speed coaches and movement coaches I've worked with. And it's it took a long time for us to sort of utilize him the most. And so sort of, it was all it was everyone had a viewpoint. So France had a viewpoint. We all worked together and had to do it. And nineteen like the World Cup was probably the best we had it. So because his exercises. Um, they're quite demanding as in the volume of sort of contacts that they do the high neuromuscular load as well you have to be really careful with that um, so we got to the point of sort of the little than often technique so for example with he, he did individual analysis for every player in our squad in our in our radar as well so say it was for the World Cup it was 42 players I think um, and then in our gym sessions we didn't we wanted to get him in but we didn't want to have a big chunk of time where they were just doing that all the time because they just couldn't <coughs> tolerate the volume and scope. We wanted little and often, so we uh, used we did his exercises as superseted exercises in the gym. So, for example, the uh, lower body session where they're doing the double leg, superset that with one of his exercises that was individually prescribed for the player. So each player would have four or five. I took from Franz's analysis to work on, so it could be from one player, top speed stuff, upper body, lower body disassociation, whatever it is, a rugby related one, um, they're five exercises, and then in their super exercise, so they may they do their double leg power, they may superset that with one of the exercises, the double strength, they may just by itself, and then a single leg strength, posterior chain work then I have another superset exercise and it meant that in the world doing six sizes exercises in the world so they could just concentrate on one thing and they, they execute it a lot better because then you have to concentrate on one 
okay, and the stimulus wasn't too much. And then what we also did with sort of the fast boys, so sort of back freak boys as well, if a session was, say, an hour long you had for a weight session, um, we would have it where it would be like a 40-minute session, but then <clears throat> he could take um, certain plays up 10 minutes at a time to, to work on some like, more advanced stuff. And that worked really well because he, he likes to have individual. The best team how Franz works is, um, he wouldn't mind me saying this, is when he works with an individual, he gets it's the most effective. So with the fast boys, with George North, Ian Williams, and Davis, etc., <clears throat> Those guys have got up ten minutes to do well. We managed it. Big thing was little and often, and we also did that in in our in unit sessions as well. So we did some good stuff on sort of the specifics you need for certain uh, rugby activities like driving, catch passing, etc. Like that. So we had like small segments in that in the session as well. So uh, to be fair to Bobby, he sort of uh, he programmed that really well. That's cool. It's really interesting. It's something I've kind of maybe over the years changed a bit because when you learn everything originally in S&C it's always look at the you know the perfect anatomical position and, and technique and everything which obviously there's a reason for that but also kind of seen that especially in sport and rugby is a great example you get in positions that are nowhere near that perfect position so you need to know how to come out so I'm guessing that's kind of similar philosophy they put you in in I guess exercises that are trying to pull you out of that perfect position but you're constantly drilling that perfect technique. Was that similar kind of philosophy? That's, that's bang on. So like, for example, mm-hmm. one of his, his sort of simple exercises is lockout. So it works on <clears throat> sort of getting you in the acceleration, acceleration position. So you would do like a lockout, uh, you, you lean and you uh, lean onto a wall and move into a lockout position where you, you do various things to try your best to get them out of it. For example, they may use like an aqua bag so they're unbalanced or they may step further away from the wall to start off with so then it's really hard to get into that lockout position um or they may move a plate as soon as they do it so they're sort of your center of mass moves so it's the theory of it is basically do exercises to <clears throat> try and get that position but they 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 work on getting getting that position whatever it is so then you move into rugby like you said when they're in like a, a terrible position or they've just got up and they're going to a sprint they get into that uh, optimal position as quickly as possible. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I, I don't think it'd be offended if you say you know he, he works better one on one. I think when you work on something like you know running mechanics as well, if you've got a group of players, it's so hard to do because everyone's so different, aren't they? Um, yeah, so. it's tough. So, <clears throat> we did it as well. You, you find have to do that at some point. So I used to, I I take sort of the big group stuff. So if you're working with, you know, 10 players or whatever, and then it freed up Franz to do some very advanced stuff with sort of specific boys. Um, so luckily I've, I've learned a lot from him and I sort of, I can implement stuff and I have my own ideas, but then we used to free him up to do sort of what he's paid for, sort of the individual high-end stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Um, right, let's move on to uh, your experiences on the Lions tours. Um, obviously, you know, it's a, again once once every four years um, highlight of a lot of players' careers, and um, also that challenge of bringing you know different different nationalities together and guys who normally you know knocking chunks out of each other. What what were the experiences on the Lions tours? Uh, it was it was amazing, really. I was really 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 lucky to go on it in, in seventeen to New Zealand. Um, so luckily, 
Bobby sort of asked if I wanted to come. And the biggest thing, sort of the challenges, there were, there were quite a few sort of logistical challenges <clears throat> because we played 10 games in five and a half weeks in New Zealand. And the biggest start-off challenge was is that we were we were flying the, the first game against the Barbarians was the week after all the finals. And we were, we flew on, we landed on the Wednesday and that game was on the Saturday. Um, so you would think about all the, you know, all the research or the prep that would be for jet lag, isn't it? It's an hour, it's an hour, <clears throat> a day for every hour time zone different. So we were getting there ridiculously early. So that was a big, big challenge. How we did, so we just went on full recovery mode and the coaches basically, the guys that went to the finals didn't play that game whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so we, we went there. We landed on the Wednesday, we did recovery straight away. And it's amazing. The biggest thing I found from it was how we underestimate the capability of players. Like, you have all this thing about the research, they can't do stuff two days after or preparation as well. The Lions sort of is so demanding. Like, some players were playing 380 minutes in 10 days and they just got on with it. Obviously, it wasn't ideal, but they still performed exceptionally well. So that was the biggest thing I got was sort of how we underestimate sort of players' capabilities. Um, it was mad, it was impressive, it was so impressive some of the guys getting up for it. But the the biggest thing, one of the other things as well, was um, sort of bringing the four nations together is just, you need sort of great motivators as well, bringing people out to laugh, and that's uh, one of Bobby's sort of strengths as well. He's such a great motivator in bringing people together. Um, and that was a big thing I learned as well, is just sort of the more the sort of morale side of it as well. So half our jobs was sort of keeping upbeat, <clears throat> keeping everyone happy in the gym, keeping them motivated. It's a long old tour. And obviously you've got selection going on. No one, everyone doesn't know each other really, really well. So keeping everyone motivated as well. That was a big, big thing that I learned from that is um, the importance of morale. Yeah, definitely. That's something um, you always hear about Bobby is that, you know, he's, he's an expert at, at morale and, and you know figuring people out and keeping them keeping them enthused and everything so it's um yeah it must be great to to work with him um yeah yeah he's a great guy I've, I've, i well like i said i was with my internships so i was there i knew him since 2007 so uh yeah he's, he's a great he's a good mate really really good and ex excellent at his job yeah uh, again this is another question we we ask all the uh, all the guests in the podcast is what advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach uh, I would say, I, only on my experience as well, I could be completely wrong, but sort of um, when you're up and coming to strength coach, the biggest thing that sort of a strength conditioning coaches, coaches <clears throat> like to see is a work ethic. So just work, work, work your nuts off, basically. Work as hard. All the all the jobs that they give you, although they think that it's, you may think that it's like menial or anything like that, just do it to the best of your ability. Make sure it's done. And... If, if <clears throat> believe me, if, if you do them well and stuff, they'll give you a lot more responsibility much quicker. Um, everyone goes through the internship route to get into strength and conditioning with elite sport. If you're not an elite player, it's just sort of the nature of the beast, really. Um, so everyone's been through the pathways, like the top, top guys. But if you work hard, um, you'll get credited with giving more and more responsibility. And one thing that sort of uh, Craig White told me as well is just take lots of notes as well. So I used to sort of take loads of notes of what people are doing, um, different sessions and stuff, and then it sort of lets you form your own sort of philosophy as well because you, just, you don't want to be just a yes man where you do everything and you chop and change as well. It takes time. Like, I, to be honest, I've only just sort of developed a sort of philosophy in the past couple of years um, of what I want, and I think that's really important. And 
Uh, I think take notes and I think the other thing as well is have a bit of empathy for the players to try and do some of their training so when I was younger um, I tried to do sort of what the players did so their weight sessions that type of stuff so you could have a bit of empathy to see how you feel like they you don't have to do the same weight as them or anything like that but players appreciate you feeling it and actually training yourself because it's uh, like as you know sort of rugby performance or specific sport performance is a lot different to what you do in a normal gym yeah, definitely. I think that's a that's a really big one. Like, you know, you'll if my one of my old uh, bosses used to say, or used to do the same, used to do basically the same gym program as as the guys were doing, and he'd be like, if I'm completely fucked, then they're definitely going to be completely fucked. You know, you've you've got to, you know, maybe something needs to change because they're actually doing the rugby training as well. So it, it just gives you that that little insight into what they're going through as well. Um, as well, when you when the player asks you and you like you do a I don't know, an off-beat conditioning session like a, it's absolutely savage. If you like when you're younger as well, if you do it with them or if you do it with them as well, it gives you a bit of credibility because it shows that you're willing to put a bit of you know <clears throat> a bit of effort in for them as well. And you're not going to be doing the same powers and for example, like squatting wise, I'm I'm not I'm I'm weak as piss. I'm not going to do the same amount as weight as most rugby players, but it gives you a bit of appreciation to know. That they know you're actually doing it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and on the same the same sort of thread, what are there, are there any books or resources you recommend to young coaches? Uh, I the one that I did when I was sort of growing up was the scientific principles of training of strength training. But I think with sort of obviously all this lockdown going <coughs> going going happening and stuff like there's a big as we're chatting out before. Um, for air and stuff like there's loads of webinars of podcasts that type of stuff like this one so so many resources nowadays just keep on learning that um, and keep up to date with research really like I do a Google Scholar sort of alert on set things like resistance training hypoxia cryotherapy whatever you're interested in that's quite a cool thing to do that someone um, someone advised me to do and I've used that for a few years um, yeah but I think just podcast stuff like that try and get your qualifications as well like <clears throat> a lot of people need love if you when you're up and coming uh, they look for masters now like i've got I, I did my masters at edith cowan um people look for that nowadays to so try and get your sort of qualifications early on yeah definitely i mean most like internship application i see that you know a big heap of them have already got masters so it's just you know it's the nature of the beast you need to need to get that level of education now. um so just to, I know we've run out of time. So just uh, just to finish up, where can people learn more about you? Uh, well, I'm a bit, I'm a bit recluse on social media. Um, <laughs> sort of a voyeur on Twitter. I've uh, I've only just sort of gotten into it, um, so I don't really put anything. But um, uh, my happy like happy it's John Ashby eighteen, all one word. Um, but happy for people to message me as well. Um, sort of start conversations, have a chat, uh, different ideas as well. Um, and then my email is johnashby at live.co.uk so happy to chat with people um, yeah get some I can get some new uh, we can share some ideas I definitely 100% don't know everything as well so it'll be really good to get uh, sort of ideas and viewpoints from different people as well that's great and of course we'll share those in the show notes uh, but lastly thanks John it's been it's been great chatting to you um, some uh, really good insights into you know an international camp preparing for World Cup you know Lions tours you know it's been and some of the research you're doing as well which is great um, you know you, you're in a really good environment there and you can see 
there's a lot of thought process behind what you're doing with those those guys and uh, you know it's no surprise that they they perform perform well so um thanks for sharing that with us today no worries anytime yes thank you john uh, some great information there so thank you for sharing uh, that with us and all the best for the future uh, hopefully we hear about some uh, some international rugby soon um guys please subscribe to us on soundcloud stitcher itunes tune in spotify whatever you use for your podcasts and of course give us a five-star review we do appreciate all the all the help and reviews and sharing it with your friends uh, and of course check us out at rugbyrenegade.com uh, tons of cool things happening there we're trying to rebuild the site so um, keep an eye peeled for that that should be happening any day you know. uh, and of course keep checking us out on social media until next time thanks for listening to the rugby renegade podcast for more quality rugby strength and conditioning information check us out at rugbyrenegade.com rugby renegade building machines